morning and turn to Colossians chapter 2, and then be ready to go to the Old Testament in Numbers. We're going to be looking at a a few passages there. Colossians chapter 2. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 2, verse 16 through 19. And in this passage of scripture, we will see the warnings that are given to us as believers because we are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we approach your word, Lord, we want to do it with reverence because we are coming before the word of the king in whom we serve and in whom we are subjects in his kingdom. And we are so because of Christ, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So, Lord, give us listening ears. Give us a receptive heart that we would understand the word of God and, Lord, it would move to our will so we do it. And I pray, Lord, we would do it in a way that is filled with thankfulness and joy and honors you. Give us discernment every day to be able to know the good and the bad, the right and the wrong your way and every other way. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, Colossians chapter 2, and I want you to just to think, the penalty for our sins accounted to him. Christ's perfect righteousness credited to us. And that means that we are vindicated that we are on the victory side. Therefore, when a Christian is being persecuted for their faith in Christ alone, or for their obedience in doing what is right, or for their refusal to participate in the old sins that they used to commit and the sins of others in society, we can find comfort and contentment in the middle of those troubles and temptations and reflect thoughtfully on the ultimate vindication and victory that we have in the finished work of Christ. That Jesus' sacrifice was so perfect, so final, and so sufficient, i.e. complete, that it gave to all who believe in Christ a permanent justification and a continuous position before God that will be enjoyed now and forever. But remember, we have an enemy who through false teaching and false teachers desire to confuse Christians and to get them to think that somehow the cross of Christ was not enough or sufficient, that there are things that we need to do in order to help God save us or help God keep us saved. In other words, the enemy wants to steal what you already have. He can't get you anymore. He can't make you his possession anymore, but he can steal what you have. So the demons use the certificate of indebtedness, as mentioned last week, against us to keep us accused in the state of guilt and enslaved to his decrees, to his commandments, and to obey his regulations, not God's. The implications of our completeness in Christ comes with warnings. Every Christian should want to inquire as to what the Christian life is. What am I to expect as a believer? The true Christian life is a life that is hid with Christ in God, yet it is a life lived, lived out on this earth with many dangers. 
So scripture now gives us instruction concerning warnings about doctrinal and practical errors of false teachers. So if a man creates a religion, any man creates a religion, it will be man-centered. It will turn out to have no saving or sanctifying value. It will lead to worship of the creature and not the creator. It will not lead to a worship and a relationship with the true and living God. So there are two warnings given to the church about the wrong way concerning Christian doctrine and life. And each of these warnings is like a stop sign at a very busy intersection. And it warns us to stop and to look both ways and proceed with caution. So here's the first warning, verse 16 of chapter 2 and verse 17. Let me read that first. It says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of that which is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the first warning is in order to... It is, it is in order to sever yourself from any deformed patterns of Christian living. Now, we're going to find those patterns are legalism, pride, and the things that go along with those things. But first of all, I want you to notice, remember, in the book of Colossians, Paul is writing, identifying one particular Christian what quasi-Christian, claiming to be a Christian, but a false teacher. But he's a leader, and he says in verse number 16, notice, here's the distinguishing mark of this certain false teacher. It says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. Now, if the writer is focusing on this prominent leader who has incredible uh, ability to teach and gather people around him to listen, the leader of this emerging faction sets himself up as a judge. A person who, who would take others to task by passing personal judgment on another person's actions and usually not to encourage them, but to criticize them and to find fault in their life. Now, this sounds like a person who wanted to have control over those in his religious movement. Today, we would refer to this kind of person as a cult leader. And how are Christians to respond to this domineering, imposing leader? Well, verse number 16 gives us the first command out of the two, and it says, therefore, let no one, let no one, or no one is to act as your judge. So the strength of keeping this command is the knowledge that you and I have of the complete salvation we have in Jesus Christ. That's what gives us the strength. That's the foundation. But he wants to rob that from us. So if you know what you believe and you know what you believe is based on biblical doctrine from the word of God, then there is nothing to fear from those who desire to impose judgment on you. You have the confidence in Christ's finished work on your behalf and you have the Holy Spirit of God and the word of God, which will give us, all of us, discernment. So when the question comes up, as to how the Christian life is supposed to look, we Christians have a clear idea from the Word of God. We have already learned in Colossians how the Christian walk is supposed to look and how we are to proceed. If you look back at chapter 1 of Colossians, look at verse 10 and 11, 
because it already told us there in verse number 10 of chapter 1, it says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God of verse 11, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, and we do that joyously. So here is really what the Christian life is about. I walk every day in a way that I, I learn how to please God, but it's not by my own strength and your own strength. It's by God's strength that we do it, and then we become steadfast in that and what we believe, and we become patient in the process of God sanctifying us every single day. And we do that with the attitude of joy. See, that's what the Christian life produces. That's what the Spirit of God produces in our life. And in the strength that God gives, we purpose in our hearts that we will not let anyone judge us. Nonetheless, this imposing judge has his own idea of how life and the life of a believer is to look and what they are to do. And now we look at it. Look at verse number 16 again. These are the features of the false teacher's doctrine. Notice what it says in verse 16. Therefore, let no one, no one is to act as your judge. And then it says, in regard to what? To food or drink or respect to a festival, a new moon, and a Sabbath. Let's unpack that a little bit this morning. If you notice here, this is the legalism imposed upon believers by these false teachers using dietary rules and eating and not eating food, eating food, and keeping and not keeping certain holy days. Now, this always looks like wisdom. This always looks like, yeah, this is the way it ought to be but it is not the way it ought to be. In fact, that's what this passage is about because this teacher is imposing legalistic, first of all, dietary regulations on the people that are listening to him. In other words, you, if you're going to be, quote-unquote, a believer, then you have to keep these food regulations. You have to do that. So you can see very quickly the Jewish element in this false teacher's doctrine in which rules of piety and purity serve to set the Israelite diet apart wherever the Jew may live. Some animals, remember, were clean, so could be eaten, and others were unclean in which they were restricted from eating like animals which parted the hoof and chewed the cud, and then various kinds of birds and fish and insects, things they could eat, things they couldn't eat. Now, just for some reference, let's look very quickly back to Leviticus chapter 11, just a few verses, verses 1 through 4, because you find there uh, from this passage and in Deuteronomy that God gave to Israel certain things that they could eat and they shouldn't eat, and it set them apart from the nations, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke again to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from all the animals that are on the earth, whether whatever divides a hoof and making split hoofs, choose the cud among the animals that you may eat, nevertheless you are not to eat these among those which chew the cud or among those which divide the hoof, the camel, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hood, hoof. And then it says, it is unclean to you. So here it is, the clean, unclean dietary regulations. And the regulations also prohibited any food which was or has been contaminated by some contact with other cooking foods or water that was defiled by unclean carcasses, something that died in the water. And it goes on that all these regulations were given to Israel. 
to make them different and distinct from all the rest of the nations around them because they would be God's people. And they were recognized as God's people by what they ate and what they didn't eat. And these other nations didn't have those regulations. So this was a, a distinctive mark for Israel. But I want you to notice back to Colossians, you see there that not only did this false teacher impose these dietary regulations on people, but legalistic rituals he imposed upon them, like it says in Colossians 2, verse 16, or in respect to a festival. Now, a festival was an annual festival, like Passover or Pentecost. And then a new moon was a monthly offering or, or a festival that was regula regulated by the lunar calendar. And then, of course, a Sabbath day, which was a weekly holiday, right? The Sabbath they, they were to keep every week. Again, if you're still in Numbers, you can look to Numbers chapter 10, verse 10, because it give, gives us, again, a sense on what Israel was supposed to do to make themselves different than the other nations. And it says in 10.10 of Numbers 10, it says, Also in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feast, and on the first day of your months, you shall blow the trumpet over your burnt offerings, over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord, your God. And then other passages say the same thing, and it talks about doing something at the beginning of the month, and they were to offer drink offerings and burnt offerings each month throughout the month of the year, like offering one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord that shall be also offered with a drink offering in addition to a burnt offering. So the Israelites had a lot of things they were given by God to do to show themselves to be the covenant, Old Testament covenant people of God. So many things were required monthly, which led up to, of course, annual sacrifices and feasts. But they also had a weekly holiday, and that was the Sabbath. Every single Saturday, they were to rest. Actually, the Jews had seven yearly feast Sabbaths, as well as a weekly six-day Sabbath of rest. However, none, none of these has been carried over and given to the church. None of them have. The saints in Christ are not under obligation to keep the Jewish feasts, Sabbaths, or their day of rest of the weekly Sabbath. Now, if we think about that, we'd have, we would also have to say, if those are under the shadow of truth, who did not, these people did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit as believers do today, if they were commanded to keep one day as a special day for the Lord, how much less should we? How much less should we? The saints in this age, in the church age, keep the Lord's day, the first day of the week as a day of worship. The Sabbath was not changed it just was not given to the church. So Sunday is the first day of the week. It pictured a new age has dawned in Christ. After his death, his burial, and resurrection, this took place. So on the first day of the week, if we would go through the scripture, we would find that Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week, and it became the Christian's most important remembrance of everyone who was in Christ. And then on the first day of the week, as we go through the Gospels, we find Christ met with his disciples twice for the breaking of bread after his resurrection. That became an important thing for believers to, to do. And then on the first day of the week, it was the Holy Spirit that came to the earth to indwell believers on the day of Pentecost, 
That was the first day of the week. And then, of course, the disciples throughout the epistles and the book of Acts met on the first day of the week for preaching, for communion, for gathering together to fellowship and to worship, and for gathering offerings for the Lord's work to be done in different other regions. So with the example of Christ and of the Spirit and of the apostles, this makes the day of the Lord the first day of the week. That is the Christian day of worship, not Saturday. And what others have said about food and dietary regulations after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ become very clear in Scripture. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote another passage of Scripture in Romans. He said there, therefore do not let what is in you a good thing be spoken evil of, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus himself declared in Mark 7, verse 19, when he was having this dialogue with the, with the leaders of Israel about putting stuff into your body and you know what was unclean, the food or the heart. Jesus was focusing on the heart, and he said to them there, because it does not go into the heart but into the stomach and is eliminated, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus uses his authority right there as, a, as the resurrected Lord, and he says, listen, all these dietary regulations are null and void. All food is clean. And then take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 10, because this is where God enforced in the apostle Peter that all foods are clean. Now, remember, the apostle Peter was a staunch disciple of the old regulations of keeping the food regulations. And so God had to actually bring a vision to him three times before he would comply. And I want you to notice in Acts chapter 10, verse number 9, down to verse number 16, it says, on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky open and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in, in it all kinds of four-footed animals and creeping, crawling creatures of the earth, birds of the air, and a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And what does Peter respond in verse 14? Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. But then notice in verse 15, again, the voice came to him. Actually, three times it came to him. The voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer considered unholy. Now, God had to do this three times before Peter can be freed up from the dietary regulations because he was no longer just part of Israel. He was now a new believer in Jesus Christ. And those regulations are null and void in Christ because a new thing had come. Now, what is very interesting is after the resurrection these imposed dietary restrictions were considered by the Apostle Paul as demonic. Well, to back that up, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, gives us the background for that, if you'd like to turn there. But if not, listen what it says. It says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, in verse 2, by means 
of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And notice verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So that's pretty clear that if anybody is going to impose any dietary or festival regulations upon you, you just say, sorry, that doesn't apply to me. That was taken care of already by Christ. So these false teachers judged his followers by their observance of these calendar and dietary regulations. However, Christians are not obligated to observe any calendar or any dietary observances. In fact, even the Lord's day is not a command. It's a willful response with gratitude to the Lord that I want to meet. I want to worship the Lord. I want to hear the word of God. I want to give you praise. See, it's a willful desire to want to do it. God's not dragging anybody if they don't want to come. So don't let anyone take you to task. No keeping of laws and rules will earn salvation or cause you to grow spiritually. Nothing. We don't have to abstain from any food. We don't have to keep holy days. We are free. These have no spiritual or saving significance at all. Christians cannot grow measured by keeping or accomplishing certain things and keeping and not keeping man-made rules and regulations. These are done away with. So these calendar festivals and these dietary observances, they do have a purpose, though. They were a dim outline a mere shadow of the reality of things in which they pointed to something that is going to come in the future. Now, take your Bibles again and turn back to Colossians chapter 2. Notice in verse number 17, because the Bible explains this. So what reality was intended by all these festivals and these dietary observances? Well... Verse 17 says, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There's a lot right there in that passage. The shadow, the reflection, the silhouette of something of Old Testament teaching. It's like a shade caused by the inception of light or an image cast by an object and representing a form of that object and prophetically of the relationship of type and anti-type. The type that happens in the Old Testament and the anti-type that is a foreshadowing of the reality that will take place. So a dim outline, these rules and regulations were a dim outline or a sketch of an object in contrast to the object itself. Now, the passage we read the, this morning talking about Moses and the pattern of the tabernacle and the things of the priesthood that were taking place, Moses was told by God, listen, do what I told you and make this tabernacle according to this pattern that was seen in heaven. But the tabernacle would just be a ghostly copy of not only the tabernacle itself, but the earthly priesthood. For it says in Romans, in Hebrews 8, 5, who served the copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses warned, was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For he said, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So in other words, the point being that the earthly priesthood 
because it was only a sketch plan representing the real copy of that which was in heaven and was an inadequate shadow of the real priesthood that these could never lead people to the reality of God's heavenly sanctuary or into the presence of God. See, the, only the real priest could do that. So all these things were pointing to the real priest. And the real priest was Jesus Christ, who was not after the order of Aaron, the priesthood, but after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a very interesting character in Scripture. He sounded very, very much like God himself when you read those things in Hebrews. So in other words, if this could not provide entryway into the heavenly sanctuary and to the complete forgiveness of sins so a person could have access to the presence of God, well, who can? Well, surely Jesus can. It is he who leads us right into the presence of God. And Jesus is the reality of the shadow and the types of the Old Testament sacrifices and the Old Testament dietary laws and the Old Testament festival days. He is the one who is the substance of those things. So Jesus is the high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice for sinners. The priest had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin first, and then the sins of the people. Jesus has no sin, so he offers himself for the people. That makes him completely different than any other priest that has gone before him. And all that has gone before Christ came were mere shadowy indicators of what is to come. So like yearly and monthly and weekly festivals and dietary observances and sacrifices. So you see, Christians, they do not need anyone to set them straight on these matters. For they should know that the old system, the old system of Mosaic worship is now ended in Christ. That all Jewish feasts and feast days were but a shadow of the person and work of the Savior. And until he came, and now that he has come, the shadows were empty and fulfilled by Christ. In fact, this is what it says in Hebrews 10, for the law was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. And who, is, who becomes the form and substance of things? Jesus Christ himself. So the Mosaic law was a mere shadow and thus fleeting with no value except no value to save because it pointed all to Christ. That's what the law did, right? Convicted of sins and points us to the one who could save us, Jesus Christ. So think of it like this. If you are standing next to a wall and there is a source of light behind you, your body is going to cast your shadow on the wall. But the shadow is not really you. It is only a reflection of you on the wall. So all these things, these types and shadows and sacrifices and regulations of the Old Testament were all a shadow pointing on the wall. But remember, once the light source is gone or the light source moves to the other side, there's no longer a shadow. If you go back and look at Colossians chapter 2, verse number 17, Notice what it says. It says, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the existence of a body that casts the shadow, a shadow only exists when light is cast upon something that actually has mass and has substance. So once the light moves from behind the reality to the other side, the shadow disappears. So what do we have? We have Christ coming into the world as what? As the light of revelation. So the light has shifted to the other side of the law, making regulations pointless, that Jesus is the reality. 
and Jesus is the light. We come through the Gospels, and what do we see? That Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in what? Darkness, but will have the light of life. So where there is a shadow, there is also reality. And the Old Testament mode of Jewish worship was a picture of the Son of God who would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So in Christ, everything, everything is fulfilled. And before Christ, before Jesus came, godly men waited by faith. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might do what? Redeem those who were under the law, that they might receive the adoptions as sons. They could no longer come into the family of God by the Old Testament regulations and sacrifices and feast days and dietary laws or anything like that, but only through Christ. The whole book of Hebrews is about, listen, leave Judaism. And leave everything behind and go follow Christ. And whatever religious system you came from or I came from, we need to leave it all behind and turn from that and follow Christ and not drag all this baggage into our our Christian life. See, Christ is the real thing, in other words. He is the substance. The substance belongs to Christ. The Passover points to Calvary, Christ's death on the cross, the feasts of First fruits points to Christ's resurrection. The Feast of Trumpets points to Christ's rapture and second coming. The Sabbath, which is Saturday, is a blessed holy day, but Israel had a shadow day in that Sabbath, yet it pointed forward to the substance, which was Messiah, which they have rejected. And now coming to know the Lord individually, but someday in the land they will come to see the Messiah as who he is and no longer look at the shadow, but look at the reality. We look at the burnt offering. It points to Christ's willing offering of himself. The meal offering points to Christ's purity and sinlessness. The peace offering points to Christ's accomplishment on on the cross. The sin offering points to Christ dealing with sin and its guilt. The trespass offering points to Christ dealing with sin's injury upon humanity. See, Jesus has fulfilled everything, and he is our spiritual food, and he is our light. So the first warning is pretty clear. Don't let anybody judge you. Why? Because of what you know, because of what Scripture teaches. We're warned by that. But there is a second warning. Back to Colossians chapter 2. The second warning is to sever yourself from those who have a diminished view of Christ. In verse 18 and 19, here's the second command in Scripture in our text, and it says, let no one, verse 18, keep defrauding you of your prize. I don't know about you, but if we have a prize, don't let anybody take it away from you. Here, the term keep defrauding is an interesting term. It comes from a, a split Greek word. The first part, kata, means against, and the second part, it means to be an umpire of the games. So you put them together, and it meant to decide against someone as an umpire might do with the result that they are have robbed someone of the prize for which they were competing. A strike comes over the plate and you're at bat, or a ball comes over the plate and you're at bat and the umpire calls it a strike. If you turn around and argue with the ump, you're going to get thrown out of the game, right? So here, this false teacher, again, is deciding like an umpire in a game for what reason to rob someone of the prize that they were competing for or depriving or cheating someone of their spiritual reward well what's the prize the prize of what she was trying to rob the colossians and us 
are being robbed of the fullness of life in union with the incomparable Christ. That's what he's trying to rob. If Christians give in, they're back to square one. So then the command, let no one act as your umpire against you to get you to deny your claim to be a genuine believer. Don't anybody let let them do that to you. If you know the truth of Scripture, you don't have to let anybody do that to you. Now, saying that and keeping that command is also discerning how the false teachers are going to carry out their umpire judgment upon believers or against believers. Well, what's the first thing he does? Look at verse number 18. The first thing is what he does. It says, by delighting in self Mortification. In other words, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. How? By delighting in self-abasement. If you think of this for a moment, remember, we're supposed to do things out of joy. This is an enforced delighting. Like, you will delight in this or else. So, often in Jewish Christian writing, the term self-abasement is used in connection with fasting saying that the ascetic practice is entrance, when you fast, is an entrance into the heavenly realm. You gain something when you are fasting because fasting prepares you for heavenly visions. It brings you into a spiritual realm that you can only get to by obeying what the teacher says, not not only about the regulations that he just is imposing upon the believers, but now upon now abusing or keeping down your flesh. Now, I don't know about you, but fasting is a good thing, and it is a Christian thing to do. But in this sense here, it is not talking about a Christian thing to do. This is talking about fasting so you look good and now you prepare yourselves for this higher knowledge that this teacher says that they have. So they're... Their profession of humility was cloaked in this excessive pride, which seemed to be a false humility that brought attention to men, not to God. It's it's probably when, when people keep the feast and the regulations of the false teachers, they're looked upon as humble and obedient, right? They give an appearance of wisdom and piety. Wow, look how those... Those holy people, how they practice their faith so methodically. Even as the the Muslim believers put out their carpet every day and and pray three times a day, they they give an appearance of, of being right with God and being pleasing to God. But we all know from Scripture that that's not going to bring them anything spiritually profitable at all. It actually condemns them. So the false teachers were imposing fasting and total abstinence on the body as a necessary factor in discovering the insights of the false teachers, especially the things that they were peddling. Now, if you look at Colossians chapter 2, verse, look at, down to verse number 23, it says, these are Matters which have, to be sure, an appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgences. True humility is viewing ourselves as we really are from God's perspective. And who are we? You know who we are? We're, We're sinners by God's grace. That's who we are. And so once we know that, we act accordingly. And how do we do that? Because the scripture tells us how to do that. So they were insisting upon their followers to delight in self-mortification. I wonder how that went. You know, you, you read of people like Martin Luther and some of the saints of the past, before he became believers, they used to treat their body horrible, sleep at night with no blankets, and sometimes on beds of nails, because they thought in doing that they were 
uh, putting down the flesh and exalting God and getting, it, getting into a place where they get closer to God. But it has no profit at all. And people are still doing it today. I mean, people today on holidays where we celebrate cru- crucifixion actually get crucified. And, uh, and they think that's somehow pleasing God and getting close to God and how, ho- how holy they are when they do that. You know what that is? It's pride. That's thinking you're smarter than God and that these practices are going to be beneficial for your spiritual growth, and they are not. But I want you to notice something else that leads into that, verse number 18, of that then they not only insist the followers to delight in self-mortification, but in verse 18, and they impose angel worship on the people and the worship of angels. So these false teachers viewed God as so lofty and removed from human affairs that he could only approach and address, be addressed through angelic mediators. And the reason is because they viewed the body as evil that couldn't have any relationship with God, could have no contact with the supremely spiritual unless they started with the less spiritual beings as angels. So you have to go through angels to get to God. Well, you know what that's called? It's called idolatry. Worship of angels, it says, right? If you worship anything but God is idolatry. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 to 5 says, You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth, you shall not worship them or serve them. So now they lead the people into idolatry, but the people don't think they're led into idolatry. They think they're led into a deeper realm of spiritual understanding and get closer to God, which they are not. And then you come through Scripture, and like, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 5. There's only one mediator between man and God. Doesn't that say there? For there is one God, 1 Timothy 2, 5, and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So again, when the scripture is emphasizing these things, it's, because, it's for our good to know there is no other way. There's no other mediator between me and God except Christ. So that means that they couldn't even pray directly to God. And some people even believe today that saints, you have to pray to saints before or Mary before you can get to Jesus. Well, that's just simply not true. You don't need saints or Mary, you need Jesus. Right? So, see, it, it will fundamentally deny people, rob people of the prize that they have of being freed up in truth. See, I don't need, we don't need any of those things. We don't have to back, go back to any of those things. And not only that, if you look in Scripture, true angels refuse worship. Revelation chapter 20, it says there, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down and worshipped at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And what did the angel say? Verse number 9, it says, he said to them, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, the prophets, of those who heed the words of this book. And then he said, worship God. That's how he ends it, Revelation 22, verse 8 and 9. So even true angels worship and will point you to Jesus. So that means if angelic intermediators were working in this, I think you you can conclude something. Satan has its fingerprints all over religious systems. All over it. But he never will come out and say that. No. But another thing, back to Colossians chapter 2, notice number uh, 18, the second part of that verse says this, that not only did he insist the followers delight in self-mortification, not don't... He not only imposed on them angel worship because he had an incorrect view of God, but he also penetrated into those things which he has not seen. Look at verse number 18. Taking his stand on visions, 
he has seen, inflated without caused by his fleshly mind. Now, in other words, through these aesthetic experiences, seeing visions, these experiences dominated his talks with others, and he believed it also authenticated his message that he was right and everybody else was wrong, that these spiritual and supernatural experiences made him think high thoughts of himself, like, I must be something special because I'm receiving these visions and God's not giving it to everyone else, but it's giving it to me. Brethren, a lot of the stuff is going on today where people are seeing visions, saying they were transported to heaven and writing books and making a lot of money to do those things. That's all a bunch of bunk. It means nothing. It's nothing but pride. That's all it is. And because he had these special visions of secret things, which were not open to the eyes of ordinary people, so again, Satan has his fingerprints all over religious movements because the nature of his perversions are seen, Colossians already said it, chapter 2, verse 4, enticing words. Chapter 2, verse number 8, human philosophy and traditions of men. Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, legalism. And then chapter 2, verse 20, asceticism. So the two commands are not to listen to people who say to you, if you don't do these things, you can't be saved and grow in the Lord. Don't listen to them. But instead, know what you believe that is based on Scripture. And then nobody has to manipulate you. Nobody has to try to convince you that you should be doing something you should not be doing. Because you know in your mind and in this text and in Scripture that Christ has done it all. He's fulfilled everything. And what I am required to do is follow him and love him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, right? And to do his will. That's what we are required to do. And God gives us the strength to do that. So that means that these false teachers say one must obtain secret knowledge in order to be saved and or perfected. And this knowledge was not available to everyone. Well, didn't we just get done reading in the chapter before this, the beginning of this chapter, that Christ's secret, that God's secret is who? Christ. And he has been revealed to all. And we're to preach the gospel to everyone we go. We're to teach the word of God to everyone. No one is excluded. There's no such thing as obtaining a place where you have secret knowledge and nobody else has. No. We all have the word of God. We can all study the word of God, right? So the answer to these satanic perversions that Christians are in the know because they know Christ, they have the Holy Spirit of God, and they have the word of God. Again, chapter 2 tells us that we know who Jesus is. We know what Jesus has done for us. We know who we are in Christ. We know what to do for him. We know what to do. The instructions are clear. So that is what he does to keep people and rob them of their prize. But also, this is what he doesn't do, and maybe this gives us more, substantiates more fully who's behind him. Notice what it says in verse number 19, the last part of the verse, kind of pulling back the curtain to see who's, who's pulling the puppet strings. Look what it says, that this false teaching in verse number 19 is not holding fast to the head. Not holding fast to the head. They're not holding according to Christ, in other words. He and those who follow such teaching fail to hold fast to the head of the body, which is Jesus Christ. They fail 
to follow Christ and hold his words as the ultimate authority. They fail to do that. They don't give Christ's rightful place. Any, that's why anytime you look at any kind of cult, always look first at the doctrine of Christ. What do they say about Jesus? Anything aberrant about Jesus, run as fast as you can from that place because it will lead you to bondage. False teachers are under Christ's feet as an enemy, like it says in Ephesians, and he has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then in verse number 19, the last part of the verse, he gives this, that also these false teachers are not part of Christ's body. That means they're not part of the church. That means they have no connection to the head, which is Jesus. And if you have no connection to the head, who is Jesus, you have no life. And if you have no life, you have no communication with Jesus Christ. And if you have no communication with Jesus Christ, you have no salvation. No matter how much you are deceived to think you do have it, you have none of it. And then notice what he says in verse number 19. He gives really the necessity for Christians to live in an active Christian community for service to Christ and maturity as their goal. Notice what it says. It says, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with, the, which, with a growth which is from God. So in other words, the body of Christ, the church, derives its unity and its growth as we all together gather from Christ himself. That believers are banded together Ligaments and, and joints, what are they? A ligaments really holds joints together, don't they? They hold bones together. When, you're, when you blow a ligament out, you really feel it. It holds it together. It bonds it together. It binds it together, and that's what the church does. So the gathered assembly is God's means which we gather together to hear the word of God so we are bound together with each other. We feed each other as we fellowship with each other. And so God, growth does not come from a denial of certain foods or keeping festivals or fasting for spiritual benefit. The growth comes from God himself. See, he grows us with a growth which is from God. So all this comes from the Lord to us. We don't need any of these other things. That's why religions are so incredibly captivating and destructive to rob people of what is true. Satan is behind religious systems. That's what he's behind. That's where he works the best and the most. So if God delivered you from those systems, one of those systems, thank the Lord for him. And don't look back. Keep going forward. But keep your discernment, your radar up, so when you hear things coming down the pike about, oh, no, I think a Christian should look this way and dress this way and do these 10 things, and if, if you do those 10 things, boy, you're going to look spiritual and you're going to be part of the body. Throw it all out. It means nothing. If you're in Christ, you will be sanctified, you will grow in the knowledge and wisdom of Christ, and you will become like Jesus, and you will have discernment to know what is true and what is not. It's God's way and every other way. Amen? That's what will happen. So I pray that for all of us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that we need nothing but you. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God that lays it out quite clearly on what we're to look out for, what we're warned about. Because, Lord, it's still going on. There's new religious systems pop popping up all over the place. Claiming this and claiming that. But somewhere down the line, Lord, they rob us of your grace. They take away from us the things that you've given to us freely. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be very concerned that we would see the difference and that we would hold to Christ. And, Lord, we would fellowship with one another and be bound together so, Lord, we can be strong 
as your body in these days to be strong in truth, in doctrine, in practice, and that Christ would be exalted so men and women, boys and girls can be drawn to him and that your church can become healthy and stand on the truth of Scripture. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.